0: This is HuskerOnline.com, your authority on Nebraska athletics. In this weekly podcast, you will get the latest insight on Husker football, basketball, and baseball from HOL's Sean Callahan, Robin Washet, Dan Hoppen, Nate Klaus, and Greg Peterson. Now, here's your host, HuskerOnline.com publisher, Sean Callahan.
1: Well, welcome to another edition of the HuskerOnline.com podcast. It's the 4th of July edition here as we sit here in Nebraska. Now has 12 verbal commitments about a month ago at this time. Two months ago at this time. There are about three commits, so it's it's been uh, quite a run of recruiting uh, for the Big Red. And as, as we start off this holiday edition of the podcast, uh, we bring in huskeronline.com's Nate Klaus to, to kind of break down what's gone on uh, the last few weeks for Nebraska, Nate. And it, it started, um, you know, last week with you, you get Greg Simmons to commit, and, and that was a huge flip. You're talking about a South Florida kid um, that picks Nebraska, decommits from Miami. Then Nebraska beats Texas um, head-to-head for the tight end out of Colorado, Stoll, Jack Stoll. And then, you know, JoJo Doman, um, the other – you know, another linebacker out of Colorado commits last Friday. So it's been another good run. Uh, But last week there there were a lot of victories in there for Nebraska.
2: Oh, absolutely. Three to three – or three back-to-back-to-back commitments and and all – kids that you, you beat out good schools for. You mentioned uh, uh, Greg Simmons used to be the, you know, committed to Miami, decommitted uh, from from the Hurricanes after visiting Nebraska. Um, you know, and and he's a, not only was he committed to Miami, but he has about 20 other offers uh, that were on the table for him to, to pick. So, um, and the interesting connection there is not only did Trent Bray build a great relationship with him, but, um, his uh, his godfather is Wondermonds former Husker All American Wondermonds So there was some bit of a tie there, uh, interesting tie there. Uh, Jack Stoll, uh, the tight end out of Colorado that you mentioned, you know, beating out Texas, um, you know, and he visited both Lincoln uh, and and Austin twice uh, to try and figure things out. And he said, you know, after he committed, he said that. You know Texas just didn't have the feel that Nebraska did when he was was when he was at Nebraska and it started with that spring game and so uh, and then of course Jojo Doman uh, you know Nebraska was one of the first you know major players with him going all the way back to, to uh, uh, early in the winter you know after he was coming off of a, another state championship with Avery Anderson uh, and he picked up defensive player of the year in the state of Colorado uh, and, and Nebraska ended up beating out Arizona State, which has been a program that's kind of been a thorn in their side lately. Um, and, uh, you know, in Cal and Kansas State, a couple other schools. But, uh, yeah, three back-to-back-to-back uh, huge commitments for Nebraska to carry on that momentum.
1: When you mentioned Arizona State being a thorn in Nebraska's side as uh, they tend to butt heads on a lot of prospects. And one locally here, uh, tight end Jared Bubak from Lincoln Christian, uh, decommits from Nebraska. Now, he was a Bo Pelini commit, but still, he's a Lincoln kid. I mean, he lives here in the you know the southeast part of Lincoln, and uh, you just don't see this. He switches his commit. Well, he hasn't switched to Arizona State, but it's assumed that he's going to switch to Arizona State. Um, and, and and that one's hard to put your finger on, Nate, because since I've been doing this, we, we've seen some Omaha kids do this. Trevor Robinson switched to Notre Dame. Um, recently uh, but there aren't a lot of local kids especially here in Lincoln um, that would pull the old switcheroo and decommit from Nebraska.
2: Yeah kind of uncharted territory you know when you're talking about a an an actual kid from Lincoln who's who's grown up in Lincoln all of his life um, you know to 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 pull a move like that but you know Sometimes um, in the in the recruiting process, first and foremost, you know uh, you, you, you quickly learn to, to never be completely surprised by anything because uh, anything can and will happen. but you know, in this case, I, I think it's just um, a matter of of maybe Jared wanting to to spread his wings a little bit uh, get out of get out of uh, out of town and uh, experience something new and uh, you know, and I think he was really intrigued by how. Um, you know, Todd Graham and Arizona State approached him as far as playing the position and what the position of tight end, you know, entails at Arizona State and how he'd be used more of as a flexed out wide receiver instead of an inline guy who would ask, be asked to block and do some things like that.
1: I, do, I mean, do you buy that, though? A 230 to 50 pound guy is not going to be asked to block. I mean, I, I just don't know if I buy that. Like, it sounds good in theory, but. I'm just trying to come up with a bad analogy here, um, you know. It just does not make sense that you would not have a guy of that caliber block because he's he's obviously a physical kid.
2: Well, and you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, you know, poke poke at anybody and and uh, you know, call names or anything like that, but. I had a, a parent of a kid who who had been recruited by Arizona State said that that Todd Graham will will do and say anything it takes to to uh, to sell a kid on something. So, um, you know, maybe they figured out that maybe that's what Jared was wanting to hear, and um, and that's what they did, and that's that's where they went with it.
1: I mean, how my, I just asked myself this: How many 245 pound H back wide receivers are there out there that don't block? I mean, not, very many. It's not very many. So uh, that will be interesting uh, to follow, but. You know, you, you wish Jared the best of luck. He's a great mm-hmm. he's kid. He's a great kid. Um, you know, it's been a tough deal. I can only imagine uh, the amount of pressure. And, and speaking of pressure, um, you've got Noah Fant now at Omaha South. And this this is kind of dangerous territories for Nebraska. You don't want to lose two of your top three in-state kids on their first year. And, and Noah Fant is definitely very open. I mean, nobody really knows where he's leaning. I think if you had to put a gun to my head, I still think he ends up at Nebraska Uh, But the longer he keeps this party open, um, you just don't know what's going to happen.
2: Yeah, the process has continually been pushed back for Noah Fant. You know, following the spring game, uh, he had told me that he was going to make an announcement early May. And then early May came around and he said, well, I'm taking a visit out to Vanderbilt on May 8th. And then after that visit, it was, well, I'm going to make the decision in early June and all of a sudden, now he uh, wanted to go visit Iowa and Oregon in June, and it's going to be end of end of June. And now he's going out to UCLA in the end of July, and, and that decision will probably come at some point before his senior season in, in August. And so, will they go to
1: Cal now? Cal's yeah, offered. I mean, so and, will and, they take a Southwest Airlines flight across Cali for 80 bucks and visit Cal? I mean, I probably would if I was going to be out there. Yeah, if so. you're going
2: to be on the West Coast, you might as well. And, and that's one thing that he mentioned to me at the State 7-on-7 7 7 Championships is, you know, that um, – Every school that offers him, he feels like he owes it to them to at least look into him and check him out and see what they have to offer both athletically and academically. And and I certainly can't fault a kid for doing that. But from Nebraska's perspective – um, they, they have to be nervous and, and I know that Mike Riley has personally been recruiting Noah Fant. so this isn't this isn't a case of Nebraska not trying not trying or, or falling off the map with a guy they the head coach is, has been the primary recruiter and that just doesn't happen very often not only at Nebraska but but for any recruiter you know across the country it's not very often where the head coach is your main guy so uh, you know in, for the huskers, uh, perspective you know they'd like to have this wrapped up sooner than later and I know uh, you know hopefully that uh, that will be happening sometime in, in August uh, for, you know from their point of view so uh, but, but he's a great player and, and uh, yeah you, you you're a kid that you have to land from the in-state
1: as we wrap it up here Nate briefly give me the three biggest needs remaining as Nebraska tries to get these last 12 to 14 spots filled in the class
2: well I think you have to start with offensive tackle um and then you have to go defensive end um and then you know probably um you know probably cornerback or uh, or wide receiver
1: We'll have a full show here today, uh, today here on this holiday edition. Uh, we're going to hear from both Nebraska offensive line coach Mike Cavanaugh and wide receivers coach Keith Williams. And we'll also have uh, HuskerOnline.com's Dan Hoppen and Robin Washed on here uh, to break down the post-title era teams. It was a fun series that we did here, and uh, we'll break down the offense and the defense and how it all turned out. That's all next here on the HuskerOnline.com podcast.
0: This is HuskerOnline.com, your authority on Nebraska athletics. And we're back here on the HOL podcast. Sean Callahan
1: and uh, bring back into the program now Dan Hoppen and Robin Washett. As um, had a chance, guys, to catch up with Nebraska's offensive line coach, Mike Cavanaugh, over the satellite camp tour. We've got a really good interview with Coach Cav. We're going to play here for a minute, but um, he's got some decisions to make. When you look at that offensive line, Um, Robin, um, you know, there's a lot of guys that he hasn't really made full-cut decisions on that will be interesting to see in fall camp.
3: Yeah, outside of Alex Lewis, you know, at the end of spring, there were really no starting jobs, you know, officially secured. And so this fall is going to be really uh, fun to watch how that competition plays out at those other four spots. Uh, But the one good thing uh, in their favor is that uh, while they don't have – maybe as much as experience as you would like, they have a lot of talent and a lot of young up-and-coming linemen that uh, have a ton of potential. So it, I think that uh, this competition is going to you know, obviously make each one of those guys better and I'm sure they'll have a pretty solid front when all's said and done.
4: Yeah, those young guys are the ones that really intrigue me, especially that trio of redshirt freshmen mm-hmm. that we talk about so much. You know, I think it starts with Gerald Foster. I think he's been the most impressive so far, but you can't sleep on uh, Nick Gates or Tanner Farmer either. You know, I, I would be probably surprised if any of those guys, you know, started or got significant playing time at the beginning of the year, just because there are some veterans in the mix. But who knows, you know, with an injury or two, or maybe they impress as the year goes on, I wouldn't be surprised if they were playing by the end of the season.
1: Well, let's hear from uh, head co- or offensive line coach Mike Cavanaugh as I had a chance to catch up with him. First of all, Coach, uh, it's been great seeing you out here on the road and in different parts of the country in action. And when you're out at these different camps, what are you
5: really looking for in offensive linemen in these two or three hour settings? Well, I think a lot of it is their athletic ability, their flexibility. Could the kid bend? How's he move? How's he change directions? All those things. So that's mainly the things that we're looking for. Hard to tell. You know, we do some dry blocking drills and that kind of thing, but it's a hell of a lot different if you're not in pads.
1: When, when you're looking um, for this recruiting class though coming up you've got six scholarship seniors so right. it's definitely a big need right. have you kind of looked at how you want to balance that going forward are you, are you looking at a certain number of tackles guards junior college player to I mean give us right. an idea kind of what you're looking at uh, as you piece this class
5: together with numbers well I mean obviously you know you got tackle needs but we want to get the best players we can get so um, you know I think one of the things I like to look for is kind of those guys that could, you know, basically play tackle or guard. So, you know, um, you know, we're out all around the country. Obviously, we've been out all around the country prior to this, and we're just going to continue to evaluate. And then, obviously, there's numerous offers out there as well. So,
1: You've been around the Midwest now with your time here at Nebraska. What do you like about the linemen that come out of this part of the country?
5: Well, I mean, obviously, we like that toughness that they have, and the passion. Obviously, I, uh, you know, we all like that, and um, you know, the grinder mentality as well. So, uh, obviously, in a good recruiting area, all Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota, Minnesota, Michigan, so Wisconsin, good, good, good areas. I think that's why they stuck me there. So. <laughs>
1: And you know, one guy that's been with you a lot is former offensive line coach Milt Tennerper. Right. Um, talk more about the relationship, the resource Milt's been, and right. and and what you've learned from Coach Tennerper right. these last few months.
5: Well, he's a hell of a guy. I could tell you that. And uh, I was really looking forward to meeting him when I got the job at Nebraska. Uh, I told the story numerous times. You know, I'd be at the convention and say, Hey, there's Milt Tennerper. Half the guys I was hanging around couldn't care because they weren't on no line guys, but. Uh, obviously it meant a lot to me and you know you know uh, whether you want to say it however you want to say it, the guy's a legend he was one of the best line coaches in the country. Um, The relationship that we're building we've been to dinner numerous times and uh, he was out at practice every day it's awesome being able to bounce things off of him obviously he talks right from his heart so I mean (laughs) he'll let you know how he thinks too so Uh, but it's been fun getting to really know him and Uh, Looking forward to continuing that and hopefully he's at practice every day in the fall and uh, you know, he came out to our camps and helped out with those as well and um, So just means a ton to me
1: and then one guy you talk about heart One of your linemen is Alex Lewis who plays a lot of heart was voted a captain Uh, What what are you looking for from Alex Lewis after what you saw in the spring to be one of the leaders of this team?
5: Well, obviously that leadership is going to be huge to me, that old line groups, the chemistry's really got to come together. Um, you know, that room's huge. And then, uh, obviously, I love his toughness. I have high expectations for Alex. I'm sure he has those high expectations himself. Uh, he's starting to put some real good weight on. He's gaining some uh, muscle mass. Uh, so happy with that. You know, I'd like to see him 305, 310, somewhere around there. And uh, you know. he sky's the limit for him he's a real athletic guy and um, again you know as a senior you expect him to play his best football for us so
1: well coach it's been great seeing you out here on the road looking forward to seeing you back in lincoln and fall camp will be here before you know it i uh, can't wait looking forward to coaching our guys all right that was the <laughs> Nebraska offensive line coach mike cavanaugh joining us here in dallas well, it was great to hear from he- uh, offensive line coach mike cavanaugh there in dallas and you know, i think uh had a- having a chance to talk to him more off air if they played tomorrow Uh, Their projected starting five today would be Alex Lewis, obviously, at left tackle. Um, Zach Stirrup at right tackle, you know, projects to be in there. Um, You know, as long as he comes back healthy, Givens Price, though I think is right behind him or right with him at this point, then your guards would be Chungo Candolo and Dylan Utter. And then Ryan Reeves at center. I think that would be the starting five, just based on the conversations I've had uh what they know right now. But we know a lot of that can
3: change. Yeah, obviously with, you know, like you mentioned, Stirrup, but also Ryan Reeves, I mean, the, the one – knock on those guys it's just the injuries i mean you know zach stirrup missed what the last three games of last season and the season opener and uh, including the bowl game missed all spring uh, but when he's healthy obviously they they think uh, enough of him to name him you know a potential starter at this point and then ryan reeves i think is clearly the best center on the roster, but uh, again, he just hasn't managed to be able to stay consistently healthy enough to really, uh, you know, be able to put a lot of trust in him that he's going to make it through a full, you know, full schedule of games.
4: Yeah, I don't think there's any question that Ryan Reeves is that guy that you look at at center. I mean, he came out of high school as a four-star. Uh, a, a lot was expected of him right away, but the poor kid just has not been able to stay healthy. We saw it again, and you know, b- not only last fall, but again in spring practice. I think if this guy could just stay on the field, he could really start to establish himself. But he hasn't been able to do that yet. Yeah. It's and, been
3: a while since Nebraska had a 300 hundred pound center, too. So we've had a lot of five eleven guys, a 5'11
1: ones at Nebraska. But yeah, I think the key with Kavanaugh is toughness. He likes the offensive lineman. Um, that aren't necessarily pretty, but they're tough. You know, guys like Dylan Utter and Chungo Condolo, they don't have maybe some of the measurables of the other guards on the roster. Uh, but if you're in an alley, I think those are the two guys you wouldn't want to mess with in the alley, and that, to me, seems like the style they're going to be recruiting.
3: Dylan Utter is the epitome of the gritty, tough, nasty interior offensive lineman that you just, you'd just you want. Like you said, in a back-alley brawl, Dylan Utter is the guy that you, I want by my side You for don't sure.
1: talk smack to that guy in the bar. Well,
3: we saw it, remember, in spring when they had that uh, little dust-up. Uh, you know, Dylan Utter was right in the thick of that thing, and uh, you can see why <laughs> Mike Cavanaugh, you know, knowing his personality, is really kind of drawn to a guy like, gutter
4: and this is one of those guys in dylan utter where you know he was a walk-on a couple years ago and we saw him in those first fall practices and it was just like okay this guy's going to be a camp body for four or five years no he's really taking kind of control of his career he's really gotten a lot stronger uh he looks confident out there and quite honestly you know he's in competition for that starting job he's earned it he looks the part
1: well guys we'll also hear from wide receivers coach keith williams here later on in the show but when we come back we're going to break down the huskeronline.com post title era teams it got some great debate on the red sea scrolls the last few weeks we'll talk post title era offense next here on the podcast
0: you're listening to huskeronline.com your authority on nebraska athletics We're back here on the H.O.L. podcast, Sean
1: Callahan and Dan Hoppen and Robin Washett as we are in the dog days of summer, guys. And uh, every year during the dog days, we like to put together just different features, different series to to keep people talking football because that's our job. Our job is to basically we we get paid because of football. So (laughs) our job is to keep Husker fans thinking football three sixty five a year. And, you know, last year we had the Mount Rushmore series and had a lot of fun with that. This year we kind of went out of the box a little bit, and we did what was called the post-title era team, meaning players at Nebraska from 2002 to 2015. And because uh, a lot of these lists that you do, they're dominated by the the 80s and the 90s guys, or even the 70s players. for good reason. For good reasons, they've won <laughs> titles. Well, there's a whole another era of players that I, what we labeled the post-title era, players that had no affiliation with the BCS bowl game or National championship games throughout their careers at Nebraska, and uh, we we did it first with offense, and we'll start off with quarterback here, guys. Um, you, know, you look at Nebraska post Eric Crouch, and um, our number one guy consensusly, was Zach Taylor, and he was a Big Twelve Player of the Year in 06. Not a real big surprise, I think, uh, that we all went with Zach Taylor as our post-title era quarterback.
3: Yeah, this one was easy for me, uh, you know, uh, given Taylor Martinez put up, uh, you know, some of the best numbers of any offensive player in you know school history but uh, there' was something about Taylor that he had the command he had of that huddle and um, you know you got to wonder you know if he were a bit a four-year starter the numbers he could have put up I mean because you know he was obviously the best quarterback best offensive player in the big 12 uh, during that one season um, you know I, I, I just r- really liked everything about him and in Nebraska I think when you look back he's, he's got to be one of the better quarterbacks that's played here in a long time
4: I absolutely agree with that. Zach Taylor was fantastic and one of the toughest guys I think Un- that you'll unreal. ever see. That dude took some hits and just kept getting back up. I actually had a really interesting discussion with a friend the other day, though, where we were kind of talking, you know, if you had one game to win and you could choose any of these quarterbacks, I I, I think personally I would take Zach Taylor, but this guy that I was talking with, he said he would take Joe Gans. And when you go back and look at – some of the individual numbers that Joe Gans put up in some of his games, you know, he only started, I think, three games his junior year and then his entire senior year, so he wasn't able to put up the career numbers that some of these other guys were. But he put up some really impressive statistics when he was out there.
1: See, I look at Zach Taylor as the mentor of mm-hmm. I would agree of Joe Gans and everything Joe learned. A lot of it came from him, and I almost felt like Joe was more a not a product of the system, but you know he he was a guy that i think just really excelled in that bill callahan system and and came up the ranks uh, but what big games did he win i mean other than the gator bowl what was the real big wins that joe gans had yeah
3: and you also take into account i mean he was playing in that you know late 2000s big 12 where it was just shootouts every single game and so yeah. every quarterback in that conference pretty much put up huge numbers i think
1: taylor martinez is where the debate is like where do we have him and we mm-hmm. had him at number 2, two i believe 2 and, you know, some people had him at three, but most of us had him at two. Jamal Lord made the list. Um, so, the, I mean, it, it was definitely. Not a deep position. Um, yeah, because... that, that
3: fifth spot got interesting. Zach exactly. <laughs> Yeah, we went Zach Lee, but, uh, you know, I think that uh, you could have uh... certainly made the case for somebody else just because there really wasn't much separation after those first four guys.
1: Well, let's move it on, guys, to running back. And this is definitely not a position where we had trouble finding five guys. In fact, the debate is who do you go with? Amir Abdullah was consensus number one on our list. Um, but after that, you know, you have Rex Burkhead, you have Roy Hallou, you have Brandon Jackson, you had Marlon Lucky. Um, The list goes on and on of guys that have played here that have gone on to the NFL. Uh, Brandon Jackson. I mean, every one of these guys, other than Marlon Lucky, has played significant snaps in the NFL.
4: Yeah, you know, I don't think there's any question with all the records that Amir Abdullah set that he was your number one guy. But then, I mean, you can get into some great debates after that. I mean, you could go Rex Burkhead or Roy Hallou at number two. I think they were both – they both obviously had fantastic careers – the guy that just, um, you know, obviously Marlon Lucky's a really interesting guy, and I'm sure we'll talk more about him, but the guy that's so fascinating to me is Brandon mm-hmm. Jackson. Second-round pick. Yeah, and, you know, he's the only guy in on this list who didn't have a 1,000-yard season, but he really didn't get, you know, he didn't become the full-time starter until about halfway through his final season. He had to share carries with Marlon Lucky and Kenny Wilson and Cody Glenn, but when he did start getting the lion's share of those carries, I mean, He was just about as talented as anybody on this list. And when that
1: 06 season was unique, um, they really had, Randy Jordan, the former running backs coach, who's now the running backs coach for the Washington Redskins, he was all about the committee. And every year at Fan Photo Day, he would actually have me get the running backs together with him, and it was called the committee. And he would make a little poster out of it every year. And So he didn't really believe in in making one guy the bell cow because of the Oakland Raiders. They had a lot of success the year they went to the Super Bowl with, quote-unquote, a committee. And, you know, I, before Dan Hoppins by the numbers, I did my best attempt to do it by the numbers of the running backs back in 06. And there was a point where the four running backs for Nebraska, Marlon Lucky, Kenny Wilson, Brandon Jackson, and um, Cody, Cody Gray, Glenn, man. like there, were, there was not another team in the country – where there were four backs that had that many carries. I mean, they were all on pace at one point to each be over 100 carries. I think at least three of them had over 100 carries that year. Crazy. So I think it was more the approach of the offense. But if you would have just given Brandon Jackson more and more carries, I think he definitely would would, would have been higher up there.
3: Yeah, you know, one guy, you know, that, you know, was up, like you mentioned, Dan, that uh, certainly had an argument to be on this list was Marlon Lucky. And uh, as much as that kind of worked against him, you know, in the same way he did against Jackson, as far as his numbers, uh, you look at that 2007 season, and if Marlon Lucky's not there, that that uh, would have been a much rougher year, in my opinion. I mean, he, he didn't get the rushing yards, but his ability as a receiver out of the backfield uh, was certainly, uh, I think, separated him from a lot of other guys on that list.
1: All right, let's keep it moving here uh, with tight ends and receivers receivers uh, tight end you know is a, a, an interesting one but we had Matt Harrion consensus number one because we all know what the guy was when he was healthy he was a great tight end potentially a top round NFL guy according to many people before the injury a uh, wide receiver uh, Kenny Bell made the top of our list guys um, when you look at wide receiver um, but what else I mean Maurice, Maurice Purify was on that list um, Nate Swift um, there there have been some good players at wide receiver, a very underappreciated position in the history of Nebraska.
4: Well, I think, yeah, Maurice Purify is the guy who really interests me because he's another guy who was only in the program for two years, a junior college recruit. And, you know, even it took him a little bit while, uh, a little bit of time his first season to kind of get his feet under him. But once he did, man. I mean, in two seasons, 91 catches, uh, 1,400 yards, 16 touchdowns, this guy was just crazy impressive. And I think he's really kind of the only guy that Nebraska's had in this post-title era that's kind of been that real true red zone threat where you can throw him a jump ball in the end zone and feel pretty comfortable about him coming down with it. He was just kind of a different physical type of receiver that Nebraska hasn't really had.
1: Two things about Purify I'll always remember. I was the sideline reporter in 06 that, or 07, so I was right down there with the team for every game on the field. And the way he dominated to Tlaib and Lawrence, I mean, they got blown out. But he just made to Tlaib his you-know-what. And, <laughs> uh, and then the other game was Texas. Um, the opening touchdown Nebraska had in that game, um, they threw just like a little slant route or something to him and he literally just broke like three tackles and went like 65 yards and you just can't do that i mean that was an nfl secondary texas had back then
3: yeah he was as physically impressive of a wideout that you know nebraska's had in a long time and then of course that texas a&m catch that the, the walk off touchdown one of the better plays. Oh, of that. yeah. I totally
1: forgot about that one. Yeah. That's that's definitely one of the more underappreciated wins. Steve Peterson after that game, I still remember. He goes, This is why we made this move. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: He got that on it was on camera. It was I wish I could find the tape of that, but let's close out with offensive line. Um we're not gonna do a full breakdown of each position, but I think the controversy with us was what do you do with Richie Incognito and what do you do with Carl Nix? Clearly the two best NFL players over the post-title era for Nebraska, but their careers kind of had asterisks by them at Nebraska.
3: Yeah, you know, Richie obviously you know, played both guard and tackle and then didn't even finish career, his career uh, here at Nebraska. But, you know, when he was there, despite all the, uh, you know, issues that he had, you know, with his temper, uh, you know, both on and off the field, uh, you know, his, his NFL resume speaks for itself. He's still playing. But, yeah, I know. I mean, mm-hmm. uh,
1: talking to Matt Moore, the Miami Dolphins quarterback in uh, L.A. this past week at the satellite camps, you know, Matt Moore said to me, he goes, Richie got a bad rap, and he is an outstanding football player.
4: Oh yeah, he's tremendous. I, you know, you don't carve out a 10 year career in the NFL, especially as big of a headache as he is mm-hmm. <laughs> without having some real talent. And uh, and, and you mentioned Carl Nix really. I mean, he was kind of, you know, we ranked him as our number one offensive tackle, but he was never an all big Twelve second uh, team. He was second team, but never a first team all big 12 performer or anything like that. But he went to the NFL, moved to garden. He was an all pro. And uh, was one of the higher paid linemen in the league, highest for a paid couple guard years in there. NFL history. Yeah, he,
1: I mean, he made that SI list or Forbes list for highest paid players. But th- he basically quit football, and I think had to probably settle out some money with his contract. I don't, know, but he's done. I mean, he retired.
4: Well, he had uh, he had some um, flip- me- medical related issues. I think he had some kind of staff infection that uh, that went around that locker room that he was never really able to recover from. But mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean. A very impressive player. Once he got to the pros, maybe never realized that full potential at Nebraska. The thing
3: that always stands out to me about Carl Nix is just kind of how, how the way things ended with you know him in Nebraska. You know, obviously they didn't leave on good terms, and it was a few years until he ever actually came back, right?
1: Well, then Bo Pelini he had that house party where was it? Him and Purify and some other guys were at a house party when Bo Pelini first got here, and he got ticketed, and Bo Pelini. Basically said you're not invited to come to Pro Day. And, um, and that actually cost Carl Nix a round in the draft. I mean, he went way later. I think he and,
4: slipped to the fifth round, if I'm not mistaken. And
1: you know, he was projected to be second round, maybe first round at that time. But uh, when we come back, guys, we're, we're gonna catch up with wide receivers coach Keith Williams, and we'll pick back up the conversation on the post title era team.
0: This is Huskeronline.com, your authority on Nebraska Athletics. We're
1: back here on the podcast. We just went through our post title era offensive teams here as uh, a lot of debate with Husker fans on our boards on the Red Sea Scrolls about what direction to go. And we're going to stick with offense um, as we continue the show here. And um, had a chance, guys, to catch up with wide receivers coach Keith Williams uh, over the satellite camp tour. And I'm telling you, after watching him in action, the way he coaches, the way he recruits, I mean, this guy. It, Another great hire by Mike Riley. Um, I mean, just he is so fun to watch on the field. The energy level he brings um, kind of reminds you uh, of a Mike Eckler type guy uh, with that level, but. He's able to recruit in the inner cities he has a lot of connections and I'm very excited uh, about what Keith Williams has already brought to Nebraska
3: not only does he have the charisma and personality uh, you know that you love in a position coach but he's very smart and very knowledgeable about what he does I mean there's a reason you have NFL veteran like James Jones coming to Lincoln Nebraska to come work out with him for a week I don't uh, see that very often yeah I mean that that says everything you need to know and you we talked to James Jones and he said it was a no-brainer he's like I I will always, every year, no matter where uh, Coach Williams is, I'm going to come find him and work out with him.
4: Well, the thing that's so fun to watch with Keith Williams is that out on the practice field, he will literally get out there with guys and show them what Mm -hmm. they need. You know, if he watches, let's use Brandon Raley as an example. Brandon runs a route, and, you know, it can look okay. But this guy's such a route technician. He'll take Brandon out there. He will run him through the steps. He will go step-by-step with him and say, this is what I want you to do. Here's how you position your body. It's so fun to watch. And then when a receiver does run the right route and makes a great catch, he's sprinting up and down the sidelines and yelling and taunting the defensive backs. He's just—he looks like the type of guy that you know you would just really, really want to play for as a receiver.
1: And we were with him in Dallas and Houston and Atlanta and LA every single day. He wears long sleeve pants and sweats, and I'm talking 100 degree weather. But let's hear more from Coach Williams and, and, and kind of why he's been such a popular guy at Nebraska here over these last few months. For you, Coach, this has been a pretty busy trip because there's been a lot of talent, particularly at positions like wide receiver. What do you? What have you gotten out of these satellite camps?
6: Um, I've liked the satellite. This is the first time I've actually, you know, went out of state and done things like this in terms of the satellite camp. So I'm having a good time. It's a good experience.
1: Uh-huh. When, when you're out at these camps, I mean, what can you get out of just looking at these players? I know in Miami, just watching, there were so many athletic kids and whatnot. In that setting, what, what can you pull out of that?
6: Well, you know, for the obvious reasons, you, can, you get to work with them. You see guys in person because at this point of, of, the, of the year, guys are a lot better and sometimes a lot farther along than they were on their film. And so, you know, it's six months later and you can see the progress, you can see the development from this from the film, their junior or whatever year that was to that point. So it's good to see that.
1: You've been around the country, West Coast, East Coast, South, North. I mean, everywhere. What, what areas
6: are you really going to handle for Nebraska in recruiting? Um, right now we haven't specified that, in, in, you know, just specifically. It's just we're just going to kind of like play it by ear based on, you know, the pattern of the recruitment of each of each individual.
1: When You look for receivers. Do you like the, the the shorter, faster
6: guys, or do you want the big body guys, or do you like a mix of everything? I like them all. I like all the good ones, all the good ones. So, uh, you know, I don't have. Obviously, you want the biggest, the fastest, strongest guy you can find. But you know, you watch the film, you, you get to know the kid, and you, you know, you just you you, you you judge him by by his own talent, and, and then you go by what you can get. Yeah, at Fresno State. You put a number of guys in
1: the NFL. I mean, just were those guys that you kind of evaluated and found that people didn't know
6: about? I mean, how how were you able to get NFL type caliber guys like that at Fresno State? Well, you got to remember that, you know, college is a four-year deal, so guys will develop. You know, you don't have to have the, be the finished product coming out of high school. If you're willing to work and you're willing to learn and you have someone that can teach you, you know, there's no there's no tell, telling how, how good you can get, the, you know, the sky's the limit. So those guys, you know, when they got to Fresno State, they were willing to work and they developed into great players.
1: Now, you've been with Coach Riley now the last few months. Um, What's it been like to work with Coach Riley,
6: and what have you liked about just the setup of how things have worked here for you in Lincoln? I love working with Coach Riley. You know, he's professional, always organized. Uh, You know, obviously we all know he's a nice guy, but he's extremely smart, and uh, he leaves no stone unturned in terms of preparation. You know, I, I enjoy that. And then lastly, you've got some good receivers coming back into the fold here. Jordan
1: Westercamp, Demorne Pearsonell, Brandon Riley, um, a good group of veterans to work with.
6: What do you like about the group that you've inherited here in your first year at Nebraska? Those guys are hungry. You know, they're ready to, you know, take that next step. Uh, they're hard work. They're hard workers. Uh, they're intelligent. They love football. And like I said, they're hungry for technique. They're hungry for knowledge. And, you know, they're, they're a good group, positive group. Nebraska wide receivers coach Keith Williams. Coach,
1: thanks again for joining us. We've enjoyed seeing you out here in action, getting after it in the heat in the deep south, and uh, looking forward to seeing you back in Lincoln. No problem. Appreciate it. Coach Keith Williams joining us here at Nebraska Satellite Camp. And It was good to hear from wide receivers coach Keith Williams and getting a chance to spend time with the coaches on the road, and that was probably one of the best parts of the Satellite Camp week was just being with the staff, sitting by guys on airplanes and running into them in restaurants. I mean, you just – got a lot of quality time with these guys to get to know who they are and, and kind of what makes them tick. And you look at Keith Williams, uh, Robin, and, and what he has to work with uh, with coaching changes. I mean, I'll, I'll start back with the Bill Callahan era. He wanted to run more of a pro-style offense. Well, he didn't have the quarterback. He didn't have the receivers. I think we can both agree that with guys like Westercamp and Pearsonell and Brandon Riley and some of the other players coming back, um, Keith Williams has a good group of players to work with here in year one. Yeah,
3: so much potential. I mean, obviously, everybody knows about Demorey, Pierce, Snow, Wester Camp, and you know if Brandon Riley. If he can stay healthy, he's got a chance to be legit. Uh, you know, not only deep threat guy because of his speed, but uh, kind of an all-around uh, receiver. And then you know, this just goes down the list. I mean, uh, Alonzo Moore, when he actually catches the ball, is an extremely dangerous deep threat. And Glenn Irons, before he got hurt this spring, was looking extremely good. And I think he kind of is uh, fits that personnel type. Don't forget little. my
1: boy Lane Hovey. Yeah,
3: Lane Hovey. I love Lane Hovey, By the way, uh, I think he's going to be a and stud. the two recruits, yes, and the two yeah. recruits, Levan Austin and um, Stanley Morgan. And so outside of Wester Camp, though, the the experience is probably the only concern with that group just because you have guys that just haven't played a lot of football at this point. But from a potential standpoint, they're loaded.
1: And Keith Williams, you know, what I always remember about him in talking to him about it more, Dan, it was the Fresno State game. You remember Fresno State came into Lincoln, not the one that a couple years ago, but the game where they almost beat Nebraska. In Lincoln. in Lincoln, yeah. He was the receivers coach for Fresno State, and I believe two or three of those guys went on to the NFL, and they just... I mean, they they took it to Nebraska. I mean, they they arguably should have won that game. they almost did. And, you know, Keith Williams and his recruiting and what he did at those receivers played a big part
4: of it. Yeah, so much of the credit uh, for, you know, um, Fresno State's offensive success that game went to Derek Carr. And understandably, that guy's a fantastic quarterback talent. Um But those receivers were really good and they helped him out a lot. Those are guys that Keith Williams developed. Robin mentioned James Jones earlier. There have been several, you know, NFL guys who have kind of come from Keith Williams' pedigree. He does a very good job of coaching those guys up.
1: Well, it was great to hear from Coach Williams. We come back here on the program. We're going to continue the post-title era team talk to close out the show. We will give our takes on
0: our post-title era defense next year on the podcast. You're listening to HuskerOnline.com, your authority on Nebraska athletics.
1: Final segment here of the show, as we've already heard from offensive line coach Mike Cavanaugh, wide receivers coach Keith Williams, and earlier in the show Nate Klaus, as we got the latest in Husker recruiting news. Uh, But we're going to pick back up now with Dan Hoppen, and Robin Washett as we continue our post-title era teams. And, boy, this has been fun uh, for me because for a lot of us, especially you and I, Robin, we've covered all the post-title era. We've Mm -hmm. lived it. We've been around it, traveled to all these road games over the years. But uh, we're going to do post-title era defense. We've already done post-title era offense. And let's first start with the defensive line where you can argue, if you were to take each position – defensive line might be the best position overall for nebraska over the post-title era starting with defensive tackle and adamican sue and jared crick
3: yeah those kind of speak for itself and you know, you look at both of those position groups, I mean, if you were to combine the top four, or the top two ends and the top two tackles, what a front four that would be. Oh, man. Holy cow. So, anyway, but it just kind of shows and credit to Nebraska's recruiting up front on the defensive line, and, you know, not only recruiting, but the the development that, you know, Bo Pelini and his staff were able to do, and even Bill Callahan, obviously, uh, you know, there's a lot of other issues, you know, in other parts of the rosters, but uh, on the defensive line, and especially a defensive tackle, they produce Uh, Some of the best this program's seen. Mm
4: -hmm. I I don't think, you know, there's really any question that Indominic and Sue is probably the best player uh, for any of these post title era teams, regardless of the honorary captain of the All Star team. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I kind of forgot, though. uh, You know, I want to give some credit to Jared Crick. You know, he. I think a lot of what he was able to accomplish a lot of people look at that and say well he was playing next to Sue he never had to face double teams really the year after and Sue graduated was Jared Crick's best year he had 70 tackles 17 for loss Nine and a half sacks. I mean, he was very incredible that season and was off to a good start his senior year before he tore his pec.
1: Well, think how different his career would end up if they just beat Oklahoma and Dallas for the Big 12 title. Nebraska's mm-hmm. up 17 nothing. He played an awesome game yeah. in uh, Cowboys Stadium. They win that game. They would have went on to the Fiesta Bowl. and
3: yeah, I, It's UConn, right?
1: Uh, that was the – yeah, that was UConn. They, they played UConn, and all of a sudden Jared Crick's a part of a 12-2 and team probably – Um, Instead of a ten and four team that you know, and I think you're looking at him a lot differently uh, by giving Nebraska that title, which you know they blew a seventeen nothing lead. But let's move over to defensive end. Uh, Adam Carricker was our number one, Randy Gregory number two. Um, You had Chris Kelsey three, Jay Moore four, and then Trevor Johnson at number five. All those guys were NFL guys, NFL draft picks. Um, You know, just I mean that's a that's a
3: loaded position as well. Yeah, I and mean, I think the real debate, you know, I think all of us, you know, agreed the character was the number one, just because he was an absolute monster. I mean, just f- physically, and then you look at his NFL career. Uh, you know, it, it, no brainer in my opinion. But the the debate was who was number two, because uh, as good as Randy Gregory was, I mean, you, you got a guy like Chris Kelsey, who's a ten year NFL vet that uh, was pretty darn good in his own right. So it, it, you look at a, a two year sample of Randy Gregory and uh, what Kelsey was able to accomplished in his career. And I think that that's probably, you know, the the biggest area of debate uh, for us of, you know, who follows up Adam character on that list.
4: Yeah. I think, you know, when you look at the course of their entire Nebraska careers, Chris Kelsey probably had a bigger impact as far as being a guy for four years, but Randy Gregory for his two years or essentially really year and a half because he had some injuries his junior year and didn't really start playing significant snaps until, you know, midway through his, his sophomore year. You know, that was maybe the best stretch Nebraska has ever seen for a defensive end, uh, at least for these post-title era teams, and that includes what Adam Carriker was able to He was just so dominant during that stretch.
1: And Kelsey's almost I, he's almost a shirt-tail member of the post-title era team. because yeah. he, he was a, a part of some pretty darn good teams. I mean, I can still remember in 01 interviewing him. Before the Rose Bowl, about going up against Bryant McKinney, Mount McKinney, he was six foot nine. I don't think McKinney gave up a sack the whole year. That guy was a beast. He was a monster for that Miami team. So he, I mean, Kelsey, you can almost argue, yes, he technically is on the 0-2 team, which makes him eligible for this list, but he really is almost kind of a part of the title era as well as the post title era.
3: Yeah, it was kind of one of those last, you know, remnants of. The, the glory Dwan Gross and him. Yeah, and those types of guys. But, uh, you know, I mean, gosh, I still can't go back to – I mean, if you put that, that front four together with, you know, Carricker Gregory, Sue, and Crick, what damage would they do?
1: Oh, man. Well, guys, obviously the defensive line, a loaded position here on the post-title era team for Nebraska on defense. But, you know, what position really impressed us all was linebacker. And I think you could argue, um, you know, two – I mean, some of these guys like Levante David and Barrett Rood – they're two of Nebraska's four best linebackers of all time. And um, you, you break that linebacker position down, Dan, and um, every one of those guys has had a very, very impressive NFL career.
4: Yeah, I'd, I'd argue that this was the strongest probably position out of all the post-title area teams that we put together. Obviously, you know, we don't need to go through Levante David's accolades. He came in and just rewrote the record books. But but before he was around, Barrett Rood had most of tackle records. He set most of that stuff. and. Uh, you know, you go back to a guy like Demario Williams, I think a lot of people kind of forgot about how productive he was as a senior. 128 tackles, 11 sacks, 14 quarterback hurries, 3 interceptions. I mean, that's that's an incredible season. Then you look at 4 and 5 at our list. Uh, you know, Stuart Bradley's a guy who dealt with injuries, but he had a successful NFL career, and... Scott Shanley went on. He won a Super Bowl with the New Orleans Saints. He was a starter on that team. So this is a very strong quintet when you look at these five linebackers.
3: Yeah, Shanley's on, you know, the last guy on that list, but he played in the NFL about as long as any one of those guys. So, I mean, it just shows the depth that they had at that position and uh, really some special players that have come through here. And
1: he's kind of another one of those shirt-tail members uh, like Chris Kelsey and DeJuan Gross. I mean, kind of the last of the Mohicans there. Of the, <laughs> yeah. Of the, uh, the, they, they kind of hung around to be a part of that post-title era run but you move on now uh, as we break down the post title era team on defense with Dan Hoppen and Robin Washett here on the Huskeronline.com podcast in the secondary uh, cornerback another position uh there there were you know we we did the offensive segment earlier in the show guys and there were definitely some holes on offense especially on the offensive line but there are no holes on defense, especially at cornerback.
4: Yeah, you start off with Prince Amukamara. Uh, he was almost unanimously the number one guy. Then you go through Fabian Washington was a number one pick. Alfonso Dennard came in at number three. Dewan Gross and Zachary Bowman round out the top five. And then Stanley Jean Baptiste and Seonti Evans were six and seven, respectively. That's a really strong group right there. I Who mean, voted
1: for Cianti Evans, by the way? That was Robin. Robin. And,
4: and I went back and looked. I mean, Siance was a first-team All-Big Ten performer his senior year. You kind of forget mm-hmm. that. He was – Really strong at he that. Shut down, nickel... Kane Coulter. Yeah, he he was strong he at did, that nickelback
3: position. You know, Bo Pelini coached a lot of great defensive backs, but he had as much praise for Siante Evans as you know almost any guy on that list. So I think he's is certainly underappreciated compared to some of the other guys that went through. And
1: there. he stuck Blaine Gabbert at the goal line. Yes, yes he, he did, did. in warm, a very very big moment.
3: 2010. As a freshman, right? True freshman, freshman off yeah. the
1: bench, giving up about a hundred pounds to the guy. Yeah,
3: <laughs> but. You look. I mean, one more point on that cornerback spot is uh, you know those those uh, top three guys. Had it not been for uh, off the field incident with Alfonso Dennard, you know just before the draft, you're looking at three potential first round picks, uh, one, two, three on that list, and so that's that kind of says everything you need to know about how good the talent has been at the cornerback spot.
1: As we put a wrap here on the defense, guys, uh, the safety position, uh, no surprise, Josh and Daniel Bullocks lead the list, followed by a, a whole host of Bo Pelini era players.
4: Yeah, uh you mentioned Josh, he was the unanimous number 1. Daniel was uh the number 2 pick for a bunch of us. Eric Hag number 3, Larry Asante number 4, Dejon Gomes uh number 5 and Damian Stafford getting one vote. But from who? <laughs> that was from Brian. Okay, I uh, I wanted to get that out there. Oh, uh, yeah. We won't go into that too much, but I mean the two guys, obviously, you know, you look at Josh Bullock's 2003 season when he had 10 interceptions. That's one of the better defensive back seasons in recent memory, I think. Um, but the guys that stand out to me that I'll always remember were Eric Hag and Dejon Gomes and just how versatile they were in those Bo Pelini defenses. Um, you know, th- those defenses didn't really have to sub so much because you could stick either those guys at safety or nickelback or dimeback or even linebacker in some sets, and you wouldn't have Just, to change your personnel. Yeah, think
1: about Eric Haig and his impact. I mean, he wins the Iowa State game mm-hmm. by uh, sniffing out the two-point conversion fake. The Washington game in Seattle, Jake Locker, a first-round pick, he picks him off on the first first pass, first yeah. pass of the game and set the tone set for the game, tone yeah. for the win in Seattle. And Nebraska blew him out at home, which was not easy to do. And now they'd ended up losing in the Holiday Bowl to that same team, but. Uh, We won't even go there. Thanks, Dan Beebe.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That list is what's really interesting to me is, you know, three, four, five. uh, All those guys were on the same secondary together, along with Prince, along with Alfonso Dennard uh, in 2009. And that just shows just how good that secondary was. And it makes sense, you know, that both Pliny's probably best defense ever had those guys uh, in the defensive backfield leading the way.
1: Well, guys, this has been fun to do. I know every year we try to come up with a, a different type of ranking list to do. And uh, last year we did the, the uh, post or the uh, Mount Rushmore. This year, the post title era team. My challenge to you, Dan, and Robin is come up with another good idea as a. Uh, Uh, We like to keep the football conversation going here 365 days a year.
3: Yeah, we're going to get something good. Promise (laughs) you that.
1: (laughs) Well, from from the entire HuskerOnline.com crew, we wish you a safe and happy Fourth of July weekend as uh, football season is nearly upon us. And that signs it off here for another edition of the HOL
0: Podcast. Thanks again for joining us this week on HuskerOnline.com, your authority on Nebraska athletics.